Okay, if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me in them to Mark chapter 1. Last time we were together, we uh, talked through the book sermon of the Gospel of Mark, and this week we begin in its content. We step into the first verses of the Gospel of Mark, and as we spoke about last time we were together in our book sermon, Mark is a Gospel of Action. He jumps right into the narrative, laying very little groundwork or foundation for the life of Jesus Christ, but only that which is necessary to accomplish his direct purpose. The purpose of reflecting the divine authority of the Messiah over all things in heaven and earth. And I would believe that that is indeed what the purpose of the gospel is, as we talked about last time we were together. That being said, however, there is one foundational element that Mark does not miss before stepping directly into Jesus's ministry, and that is the ministry of the man that we often call John the Baptist. This is how the gospel begins, and it does so, I believe, for a very particular reason. Let's jump into it this evening. Near there in Mark, Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the Bible says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So Mark begins the book by introducing his purpose, to relay the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, we use this word gospel quite often. As a matter of fact, I, I referenced it uh, last week, talking about the meaning of gospel, both Sunday morning and Sunday evening. We talk about sharing the gospel. We talk about accepting the gospel. We talk about obeying the gospel. So this word gospel, Gospel is one that is quite familiar to us. It is a word, as, as we've said, that simply means good news. And this good news ha has a topic. It has an object in scope. And that object is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And this statement is actually quite full, both of information and of meaning. We are first introduced to the identity of a man, a man named Jesus. Mark uh, takes somewhat for granted at the beginning of uh, this gospel. And he, he jumps right into the beginning here, at, assuming that we understand who this Jesus is. Now we're here, and we are in September, and we're working our way toward Christmas. Most of us are well familiar with the origins of the man that we know as Jesus, uh, the man who was born of a virgin in fulfillment of the prophecies of Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, born in Bethlehem in fulfillment of the prophecies of, of Micah chapter 5, verse 2. He's a descendant of the line of David. He's in, uh, in fulfillment of numerous Old Testament prophecies uh, so that we know who this Jesus is. And Mark kind of takes for granted that the reader knows who this Jesus is as well. He's not uh, introducing Jesus' lineage. He's not giving a genealogy. Uh, he's not talking through who his parents were or where he lived or anything of the sort. But we do see here that he is not just called Jesus. Added to the label is that of Christ. Now, Christ is not a part of Jesus' name proper. Christ is actually a title for Jesus. We call him Jesus Christ. Uh, we would see him in other places in Scripture as Jesus of Nazareth, which would be significantly more uh, likely to have been how he would have been referenced, or Jesus, son of Joseph. Um, but Jesus Christ, Christ here being a title. The word Christ is a Greek word for anointed. And this title is one which is very important to the Jews. 
in connection to the Hebrew Old Testament scriptures. The Hebrew word anointed is the word Mashiach, or in our English, Messiah. So when Jesus is called the Christ in Greek, he is being called the Messiah. And as I said already, this word in the Old Testament is very significant. Now, it's connected to a wealth of prophetic implications, but it's connected directly to Daniel chapter 9. In Daniel chapter 9, verses 25 and 26, we read this. Know therefore and understand, Gabriel speaking to Daniel, that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublous times. And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the Prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood." And unto the end of the war, desolations are determined. So Daniel receives these words, as I said, from the angel Gabriel in answer to his prayers uh, to God regarding the restoration of Israel after the captivity of Babylon. Gabriel tells Daniel that 70 sets of seven, called here weeks, were determined to finish God's plan with Jerusalem and with Israel. Now, we know comparing Scripture to Scripture that the 70 sets of seven here are not actually 70 sets of days, making 70 weeks, but rather 70 sets of years, 70 times 7 being 490 years. We need to go to the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ and later on in the book of Daniel and put those pieces together to understand this to be true. Verse 25 told us that from the command to restore and build Jerusalem, to the coming of this man who is Messiah the Prince would be 69 weeks, 69 times 7 being 483 years. And that after these 483 years, two things would happen concerning Messiah the Prince. First, he would arrive, and second, he would be cut off. And then the Bible says the end would come, the final days of which would comprise the final seven years of those 490 years. We often call those years the years of tribulation. And throughout the Old Testament, this Messiah is connected to many other words of promise. We see in Daniel chapter 9, this correlation to Messiah and Prince. He's called in Isaiah the righteous branch. He's called the son of David. He is given a host of names in Isaiah, in fact. Wonderful, counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. All pointing to a man who would come and who would deliver Israel from their sins and from their enemies. So that Jesus' label as Jesus Christ is of unique and very potent significance acknowledging him to be the promised Old Testament Messiah, the anointed one, chosen of God to deliver his people. So Mark introduces the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then he calls him the Son of God. And this is, of course, as one would expect, is also a very significant title, both prophetically and practically. The implication of Jesus being called the Son of God is perhaps best expressed through the Gospel of John. In John 1, Jesus is interacting with one of the men who would become one of his 12 closest followers. That man's name was Nathaniel. After Jesus reveals to Nathaniel that he he had seen Nathaniel under a fig tree, by implication... The idea being that uh, this was an event in Nathanael's life in which no man would have known except God. Nathanael's response in John chapter 1 verse 49 was this. Rabbi, thou art the son of God. Thou art the king of Israel. 
Daniel connects Jesus here to two titles. The first being the Son of God. The second being the King of Israel. The idea of Jesus as the King of Israel connects him to that promise of Messiah, right? The Messiah, the Prince, the one who would come, who is wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, who would rule on the throne of David. But the Son of God title is more specific still. Perhaps we can see this even more clearly through John 10, where we read this in verses 27 through 36. Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works have I showed you from my Father. For which of those works do ye stone me? Jesus asks. The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy. And because that thou, being a man, makest thyself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, Ye are gods? If he called them gods unto whom the word of God came and the scriptures cannot be broken, say ye of him whom the Father has sanctified and sent into the world, thou blasphemest because I said I am the Son of God? So Jesus here references God as his Father. He takes upon himself this title, Son of God. And the Jewish leaders naturally and correctly interpret what Jesus is saying when he calls himself the Son of God. That he is connecting himself in a unique way with the Father, declaring in fact, I and my Father are one. Jesus also distinguishes here the difference between him as the Son of God and those who would be called the Son's of God, of which you and I, if you've accepted Jesus as your Savior, are in fact a part. So Jesus is the Son of God by title, by identity. He earned that title through the resurrection when he became the only begotten Son of God, connecting himself directly with the divinity of the Godhead. You and I are sons of God, not by title, not by identity, but by relationship. It is inherited through the adoption of sons by virtue of what Jesus earned through his life and through his finished work on the cross. So that we, unlike our Savior, are not God but that we, through our inherited adoption, inherit the Spirit of God. We become the sons of God, spiritual people, those who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. All of this directing us to understand the full implications of what it is Mark is declaring here when he says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And in, in this, we immediately start to contemplate the theme of the book. Now, we walked through the whole narrative last week where I made the case for the idea that the theme of Mark is the divine authority of this man, Jesus. And I began my argument for this theme by this way that Mark introduces his narrative, presenting Jesus as the Messiah who would come and in identity as the very Son of God, he who is co-equal with God. However, this appeal to Jesus' authority begins not with Jesus Christ, the Son of God, but with another man, John the Baptist. So we read in verses 2 and 3 of Mark 1, As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. 
make his paths straight. We've talked already about the prophetic significance of Jesus as the Christ, of Jesus fulfilling various prophecies, the prophecy of the virgin birth, the prophecy of the birthplace of Messiah, and the like. All of that is wrapped up in the statement that Jesus is the Christ, because only the Christ would fulfill all of the prophecies that were made of the king that would come. But Mark actually chooses to focus upon another set of prophetic promises as he starts his book. And these are the prophetic promises concerning the one who would herald Messiah, the one who would usher Messiah in, found in quotations here from Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, and from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. Malachi 3, verse 1, we read this. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. Notice here that this is a promise of one who would come and pave the way for Messiah, who would prepare the way. But then it says explicitly, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye shall delight in, that will suddenly come to the temple, right? So we see that with, with the ushering in of the herald of Messiah, you are expecting then the Messiah to come right quick. So we have all of the things that Jesus fulfilled as it related to himself as Messiah, but then we have the fact that John the Baptist came as the herald, showing that from multiple angles, Jesus did in fact fulfill all of these prophecies. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 5 is the second, where we read this, The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. Once again, the Messiah here uh, being heralded by a voice crying in the wilderness unto the end that the glory of the Lord would be revealed. And so both of these passages promise a messenger, a voice who would herald the Messiah. And the text tells us that his name was John. Now, we often call him John the Baptist. Uh, This is not a uh, denominational delineation here or anything of the sort, right? Uh, It is because he was the baptizer. Uh, It is actually a very similar reason why we have the denominational label Baptist, uh, because uh, the the denomination uh, was characteristically understood by and defined by the idea of baptizing professing believers, baptizing people uh, a second time following a profession of faith. So that is why the denomination uh, retained the name Baptist. Uh, and John was defined by, by the very same feature, which was that he was baptizing people. And that was the, the essence of his ministry was to proclaim the Messiah and to baptize people in preparation for his arrival, realized through this ministry of baptism. So we read in verse 4, John did baptize in the wilderness and preach the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Now, just last week, we had a round of baptisms here at Legacy Baptist Church. It was an exciting day. It was a blessing. Water baptism has always been a cultural mark of personal association with a message. The baptisms of John were not a baptism reflecting faith in Jesus Christ. The baptism of John was not a baptism following people's salvation. Uh, That would not come until after Jesus died and was buried and rose again. There were those that were baptized into John's baptism of repentance. There were those that were baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. 
And then we see a slightly different flavor of that as we get into the New Testament um, church and the, the book of Acts and following. The baptisms of John were not baptisms reflecting faith in Christ, and this is important. It was a baptism of repentance connected with John's message that Messiah was coming, connected with the message that John gave that you must prepare your heart for the Messiah. It was not a baptism of faith connected with the message of Jesus. It was a baptism of repentance connected with the message of John. Now, these messages were complementary, but they are not interchangeable. One was a message of preparation. The other was a message of reception of Messiah himself. And we see this distinction made very clearly in the book of Acts. It's quite a ways in the book of Acts in Acts 19. And we read this in verses 1 through 5. And it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus. And finding certain disciples, he said unto them, Have ye received the Holy Ghost since ye believed? And they said unto him, We have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. And he said unto them, Unto what then were ye baptized? They said unto John's baptism. Then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So here in Ephesus was a group of men and they were busy about the work uh, of loyalty to and per, per, perhaps preaching of the baptism of John, the message that John had delivered. Repent for the kingdom is at hand. Messiah is coming. And Paul questioned them as to whether they had received the Holy Ghost since uh, th this, this um, baptism. And they said, we don't even know what you're talking about. We didn't even know that there was a Holy Ghost. What is this Holy Ghost you speak of? So Paul says then, he, he questions them further and he digs and he says, well, if you don't know about the Holy Ghost, then in whose name were you baptized? Unto what were you baptized? And a brief explanation is warranted here as well. We recognize that through time and doctrine, a man need not be baptized in order to be saved. However, throughout much of time, and even today in much of the world, baptism is the event that validated a testimony of faith and would often be done at the time of a profession of faith or at the moment of faith so that the moment of faith or of belief and the moment of baptism would effectively become synonymous. Now, the reason why, and we talked about this a little bit last Sunday morning as we were uh, priming our church for baptisms, the reason why we don't really see this in our culture today is because of the lack of significance that baptism has in our culture. In many cultures throughout the world and throughout time, baptism is a very deeply meaningful event, a true statement of disassociation with a former set of beliefs and an association with something that is new. And this was a really big deal. So that to be baptized could have major consequences, right? One could lose their family. One could lose their job. One could be cast out of their, their, their social circle. Uh, it could invite persecution. To this end, in places such as that, a profession of faith would not actually be that meaningful in culture. But rather, baptism would be the moment when a church truly understood that this person meant it because that was the moment that they were making their faith in Jesus public. Where they didn't just come and pull you aside and say, hey, by the way, I believe in Jesus too. 
but rather they publicly pronounced to everybody and anybody, I have put my faith in Jesus Christ. And this would be the point with all of the things that were on the line, the dangers and the fears and the, the, the potential uh, of, of social punishment for that, where the church would say, yeah, this person, I, I believe it. I believe it now. That makes sense. Their baptism would be the moment that culturally they were actually publicly associating themselves with that message, even at a great potential cost to themselves. So that to connect baptism with receiving the Holy Ghost does not imply some sort of second blessing. That Paul was, was, was uh, expecting that, that these people are saved, but they haven't received the Holy Ghost because they have not yet been baptized. That's not what the text is saying. But rather that they had been loyal to the message of John, but they had not yet heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that was so deeply associated within this culture and this time to baptism that they didn't need to talk about the idea of accepting Jesus as their Savior. They talked about the idea of getting baptized in whose name? Well, we were baptized in John's name. We, 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 we heard John's message. We were baptized in, in the, 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 the baptism of John unto repentance. But they had not heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. They had not submitted themselves to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then when they heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, they were baptized in his name and submitted themselves to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what's happening here. So Paul asked about their baptism, and this would have been very natural. As a matter of fact, the American culture where we ask, have you been saved rather than have you been baptized, is kind of an inversion of what you would expect throughout most of history as it relates to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So they replied, as we said, that they had been baptized with John's baptism. Paul specifies this to be a baptism of repentance, preparing the people for the one that would come afterward. Then he said, oh, and by the way, he's come. His name is Jesus. He is the Christ. And they were baptized in his name and the spirit of God fell on them, aligning themselves not with John as the herald, but with Jesus as Messiah himself. All of that for us to see that in fact, John's baptism was not a baptism in the name of Christ. It was a baptism to repentance in preparation for the ministry of Christ, the ministry of Messiah. They would posture their hearts to acknowledge that they were in need of one to deliver them from their sinful state and be ready for the Messiah that would bring salvation. And of John's ministry, Mark says this in verses five and six. And there went out unto him all the land of Judea and they of Jerusalem and were all baptized of him in the river of Jordan, confessing their sins. And John was clothed, was clothed with camel's hair and with a girdle of skin about his loins. And he did eat locust and wild honey. So the gospel of Mark tells us that there was a massive response to John's ministry. The people recognized him as a prophet in the vein of the Old Testament prophets, and they were ready for the prophets to return. After a prophetic silence of something akin to 450 years since the writing of Malachi. And so these people were baptized in the river Jordan. They confessed their sins. And as I've said already, postured their heart to be prepared for the message that Messiah would bring of salvation. And then Mark gives another description of John here as a man clothed with camel's hair, a girdle of skin that would be like a leather belt around his waist, and eating locusts and wild honey. And these are not arbitrary characteristics. You say, why does it care what John looked like? Why does it care what he wears? Why, does it, why, why do we care what he ate? 
Well, the reason why is because they reflect that John presented his ministry in the template of another man's prophetic work. Namely, John presented his ministry in the shadow of or as a reflection of the prophetic work of the prophet Elijah. And this is very significant. In 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8, we are given a description of Elijah. It is actually a description of a servant giving to the king when the king asked, who was the prophet that told you the things that, that, that you've been told? And the description was this. He was a hairy man and girt with a girdle of leather about his loins. And he said, it is Elijah the Tishbite. He knew exactly who it was when he heard that it was a hairy guy with a leather girdle, with a leather belt around his loins. Elijah was described as this hairy man with this girdle of leather. And the reason why this matters, prophetically, is because of another promise related to the one who would come heralding Messiah's ministry. This promise in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, which says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Now, we'll discuss later in the book the connection that Jesus makes between John the Baptist and Elijah. Uh, there's some question marks there. There's some interesting ideas there that are worthy of our exploration and thoughts, but that's a, a different sermon for a different day. But suffice it to say that as John put on these clothes and did as he did, he positioned himself in what Jesus would later describe as the spirit and power of Elijah further adding to the credibility of his identity as the herald of the coming Messiah. And the final characteristic of John's ministry as we see it presented is in verses 7 and 8. The Bible says, and, and John preached, saying, There cometh one mightier than I after me, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to stoop down and unloose. I indeed have baptized you with water, but he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. So John made it very clear within his ministry as he was ministering in this way that he was not in himself the promised Messiah. But he acknowledged plainly that he was the promised prophet who would come and announce Messiah. And then we see where the account of John the Baptist truly aligns with Mark's focus of the book. The one who came after John would be mightier than John, greater in every way than John, for though John would baptize with water, because this was the extent of John's ability and authority that was given unto him, his authority was to baptize with water unto repentance. The one who would come after him had a different authority. The authority of the one who would come after him would be to baptize men with the Holy Ghost. And this is a great contrast, is it not? The authority to baptize with water it's an authority that's been given to the local church as well. But only Christ has the authority to baptize one with the Holy Spirit of God. To place one into the Holy Spirit of God. To associate someone with the Holy Spirit of God so that we might be called the sons of God. And what is the implication of such an action? Well, as John preached it in his day, in the minds of the listeners, they would immediately turn their minds to Joel 2. The idea of one who would come after him, who would not baptize with water, but would baptize with the Holy Ghost, would immediately be connected to John 2. I mean, excuse me, Joel 2, verses 28 and 29, where Joel writes, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. 
And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. And also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit. And this is a clear prophetic promise of the last days, of the final uh, um, section of God's plan. And in it, it would begin with a pouring out of the spirit of God, a baptism of the Holy Spirit. The promise of God to Joel that the Spirit of God would be poured out in those final days, strongly associated with the breaking of spiritual bonds and the joy of salvation, reflected in the promise of the new covenant of Jeremiah 31, verse 33, which says, But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and they will be, and will be their God and they shall be my people. The baptism of the Holy Spirit would signify a breaking of the chains of sin, the writing of the law of God upon the hearts of the nation and an association with God that would make God their God and would make them God's people indelibly. Best described in our New Testament in Romans 6, verses 3 and 4, where Paul, as he exhorts the believers to live in the righteousness of the liberty that they have been given by grace through faith, says... Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father. Even so we also should walk in newness of life. The baptism of the Holy Ghost had been promised by God for generations. And in the day when God would do such a thing, that would be the day that men would have the chains of their sin broken. Their old men, their sinful man being buried and experiencing a new birth, a spiritual resurrection that Paul describes as newness of life. So that Paul would say to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Now, throughout these weeks in the Gospel of Mark, we're going to see numerous and amazing manifestations of the authority of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But none, perhaps, are more important or stirring than this first presentation that we find in verses 7 through 8 of chapter 1. That in Christ is the power to personally associate you and I with the very Holy Spirit of God. In Him is the authority to baptize us into the Spirit of God Himself and everything that comes with that. Now, it was just a couple weeks ago on Sunday morning that I spoke of the manifestations of the Spirit of God in the life of one who is a believer. The how do I know I'm saved message where we see the details of the manner in which the Spirit of God manifests Himself in the life of one who is a follower of Christ. But as we close today, just thinking through this idea of what it means to be given the Holy Spirit of God, we've already covered that we are made a new creation in Christ, that we are raised to walk in newness of life. But think through what that means with me. Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 17 says this. As many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit itself bearing witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. 
And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. As we mentioned earlier, the Holy Spirit is called for us the spirit of adoption. Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God by right through his victorious resurrection over death. Yet when Jesus gives us of his spirit at the moment that we accept him as our Savior, we become a son of God. We are adopted into the family of God. We are joint heirs with Christ into his inheritance of the kingdom of God and of Christ. Now this is a wonderful thing. But this is the authority that Christ has to give us of his spirit, to grant us a co-inheritance in his kingdom. Backing up a little bit more in Romans 8, the power of the spirit of God does not just deliver us into Christ's future victory of, over sin and over death, but it also delivers us from the power of sin today. Reading in Romans chapter 8, verse 1 through 5. Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit." For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit do mind the things of the Spirit. Skipping to verse 10. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwelleth in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these, they are the sons of God. And we come back then in verse 14 to the promise of adoption. The Spirit of God delivers us from the power of sin, from the weakness of the flesh, and empowers us to be led by the Spirit of God as we are the sons of God by virtue of that adoption. So that over the course of the next many weeks, as we're walking with Jesus through the course of his life, and as we do so, as those who read Mark as history, we bear the privilege of knowing already that our Savior has the power to baptize with the Holy Spirit of God. So that our time in the book of Mark, for most of us, is not a time to be convinced of Jesus' power and authority. I would imagine that most of you here as we walk through Mark are not in need of being convinced that Jesus has power and that Jesus has authority. But rather, in, in a very real way, I think our time in the book of Mark is going to serve for us in a similar way to what John was seeking to do for those in his day. To position our hearts not to know Jesus' power and authority, but to position our hearts to be willing to receive Jesus' power and authority. Not just to know how Jesus walked, to know he had power, to know he had authority, but then to say in our own lives, his authority is over me. His authority stands over me. 
I am subject to him. So that if we live in the spirit which Jesus came to give us through his finished work on the cross, the spirit that he baptized us into when we accepted Jesus Christ as our savior, then we are then privileged to walk in that spirit. And it is not uncommon for us to approach the beginning of any book study this way, to see the introduction of the book and to use it to prepare our hearts for what is to come. And in this case, it is most appropriate because that's really what the beginning of Mark was about. Showing us of John's ministry of preparing people's hearts for the authority that was to come. And to this end, may I encourage you to do the same in your own life this week. That as we step next week into the recounting of Jesus' ministry, of the things that he would do and the things that he will say, and as we think through the parables and as we walk through the miracles, that this week is a week where we focus on John the Baptist. This week is the week that we focused upon the man who was preparing people to receive one of greater authority. So the question is, how receptive is your heart to the life and ministry of Jesus Christ today, Christian? How receptive is your heart to Christ's authority? The Spirit of God, when we were baptized into the Spirit of God, gives us the privilege not just to see heaven one day, but also to walk as Jesus walked, to walk in the Spirit as we live in the Spirit. But is your heart in a position of personal humility, of personal repentance, of personal willingness to be confronted with the ministry and the teachings of the Son of God and submit yourself to them? God forbid that we would spend so much time analyzing the book of Mark and trying to discover the, the, the integrity and the nuances of Christ's teaching that we don't glean from Christ's teaching. God forbid that our heart and our mind would be so distracted with other things that we fail to regard the authority of the one who is speaking. Has your heart grown, grown cold to the proddings of the Spirit of God who has been given to you by our Savior, Jesus Christ? Do you need this renewal of the remembrance of repentance in our own hearts, of humility in our own hearts that positions us to say, Father, I am listening. What you say, I will do. That was what they, that's what John was, was asking for. That's what that baptism was signifying. That when Messiah comes, I'm ready for him. I'm listening I'm confessed, I've confessed my sins. I've positioned my heart. I am humble and I'm listening. Can you say the same today? Your sins are confessed. Your heart is humbled and you're listening. As we have studied the ministry of John the Baptist, it's a wonderful time to make sure that your heart is in this place of submission and readiness to be taught of our Savior. And if your heart has grown cold... And if you've walked in a measure of pride, if you've become lazy or apathetic to the things of the authority of Jesus Christ in your life, then today, let's follow the example of John's baptism of repentance. 
Let's break up that fallow ground. Let's prepare our hearts to receive anew and afresh the realities of the teachings of the Messiah who we are going to study throughout the Gospel of Mark. Because uh, though John was one that baptized with water, the one who came after him is the one that has baptized us with the Holy Ghost. And as one who has done such for us, let us be careful that we do not grow cold to him. Let's close in prayer. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.